This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 1st of November 2023 at home in Wicklow. And it is a cultural episode. It is an episode that goes from the words of William Shakespeare to the cinematic mastery of one Martin Scorsese. So that is very much the focus of today's episode. Uh, I'm going to discuss some Shakespearean sonnets that I recently came across as delivered, as spoken by two great Shakespearean actors. And I'll have a stab, um, I'll have a stab at a sonnet myself. And for the latter, the second half of the episode, I'm going to be discussing in quite a lot of detail Martin Scorsese's latest movie killers of the flower moon so i'll be talking about that and my reaction and what it made me think of and making some comparisons to one or two other movies um but that is a movie that had a huge made a huge impression on me when i watched it last week so i just thought yeah i want to talk about this because it's been a while since the movies hit me in that way so that is what's coming up. I hope you can join me. And if you do, I hope you enjoy what you hear. Take it easy. I'll see you around the corner. Cheers. Ooh, not gonna change my mind. Leaving the dream behind. Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. You're very welcome. So very lovely to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for choosing this podcast this episode and i'm very glad to have you along for the ride particular welcome to you if you're a first-time listener and uh, welcome into this ongoing exploration of of wellness of resilience of coping with what life throws at us with a degree of honesty and openness and a vulnerability that is embraced with confidence in the interest of learning more about how we can do better. Which is not to say you're not doing your best, because often, <laughs> often we are doing our best, aren't we? I feel. I mean, we're all trying to one degree or another. I mean, how many of us are really just going, eh, I can't be, I can't be bothered. I can't be arsed, if you'll uh, pardon the expression. I think most of us are trying in one way or another. But um, what I've found, what I have found as, as the dial on the clock has rolled around <laughs> through, through the days, the months, the years, what I found is things get very complex layers I mean I, I was speaking about this last week I was speaking about this last week the difficulty of speaking when our hurts and our wounds and our senses of injustment are of our senses of what what did I just say <laughs> our sense of injustice um yeah, our resentments, they build up and they, they fossilize. They fossilize under layers and layers of of silence, layers and layers of not speaking. 
and then they're so they're buried so deep we don't know how to excavate we don't know how to actually get a hold of them to to release them and they just become part of our our deeper kind of subconscious anger um these kind of weaponized fossils lurking deep within us causing us all kinds of pain and distorting our our realities and jerking us yanking us from our path (laughs) ah yeah good stuff good stuff jolly jolly times as always here on the clear out um belated happy halloween belated happy halloween it was it was the 31st of october yesterday um i'm recording this on the 1st of november and yesterday was it was a beautiful morning i was out walking um absolutely gorgeous light and i mean i have been talking in recent weeks about the the autumnal colors but they really were looking particularly burnished and golden and radiant those bright oranges and yellows of autumn on the on the trees and the early morning sun was hitting them beautifully i threw up a few photos on um on my instagram page for the podcast so uh, you can see them there if you have any interest but it really was gorgeous i was just out for an early-ish morning walk with pepper pepper the dog pepper the puppy one year old and still causing havoc i've spent a couple of days uh of uh, of each of the last couple of weekends building a kennel and uh, a compound i've been calling it a compound uh, but i bumped into a friend yesterday and he said no compound sounds wrong it's too heavy a pen a dog run um because she's been just been too destructive when left alone for too long by herself in the house she just keeps finding things to chew and destroy my uh, my mission in life is to to seek out things of value to other people um and to chew them with a with a delirious relish um that's an emotion that's not like chutney um and destroy them that gives me enormous pleasure and it's worth it's totally worth the anger um that it seems to cause because that anger is is an attention of its own kind that i value very highly okay thanks pepper thanks for that cheers um okay so today's episode i am going to spend a lot of today's episode sharing my thoughts um with spoilers sharing my thoughts uh about martin scorsese's killers of the flower moon which i saw last week and which kind of blew my mind so i want to pretty much talk about that and you know what it raised um and how how powerful i found it to be um a movie i definitely want to go back and see again in the cinema for a second time to to kind of digest it a second time to see what i can chew over um so a lot of this a lot of this episode is going to be about that about martin scorsese and killers of the flower moon his most recent movie so if you haven't seen it um you might not want to listen 
because I'm definitely going to be revealing things. If you have seen it, I want to compare notes and see if my assessment tallies with your own. You've come to the right place. Um, but dun dun dun. Yeah, before I get there, I'm going to start off with something else a little bit lighter because it is it's a heavy movie. It is a very heavy movie. Brilliant, masterful, but heavy as hell. So I'm going to start with something lighter. Um, two lovely, lovely, lovely things I saw online. No, sorry. One was online and one was on TV. Um, the Rugby World Cup final. <laughs> that actually wasn't. I enjoyed the, the Rugby World Cup final very much. It was a, another brutal um, fist fight between uh, two very physical teams in very tough conditions um, but I was quite happy to see South Africa win and Ireland's vanquishers sent home um, but I'm not going to spend any more time than that uh, other than say well done South Africa and well done Sia Khaleesi the South African captain who has a wonderful way of making it all about the people of South Africa and making the team like a symbol of South African unity and hope um, and determination um, and it really feels like it comes from the heart I, I find them um, I really like it it appeals to the idealist in me I like the cut of his jib I like how he plays I think he's a very inspiring figure um, and if you don't know anything about the history of the Springboks and how at one point they really were a face of the worst sort of apartheid racism um, and white bully boy supremacy. Um, it's great to see how far that that institution has come and what they now represent. Because um, I like that stuff. I like symbolism. I, 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 I am inspired by that. I think I think we need stuff like that. I think we need it. Um, because if all that goes away, we're we're left with, we're just left with the cynics, and the naysayers, and the you know the the doomsayers, and we've we've got to resist that. We've got to keep reminding people or being alive to the symbols and the moments and the the gestures that speak to our better selves. Um, and speak to the better angels within us, I guess, is how I feel. So the Springboks, the South African team, they kind of represent that to me. It might be a little bit idealised, but I, I don't think so. I don't think so. The proof of the pudding is there, as they say. So what I was going to talk about were two things. One, and like, do yourself a favour. Like, if you enjoy... If you enjoy language if you enjoy the english language if you enjoy poetry if you enjoy people speaking language extraordinarily well and if you enjoy people speaking the language of shakespeare with a breathtaking lucidity um bringing the full meaning and clarity of his words to vivid life just from their skills as speakers, as performers, as interpreters, 
um, do yourself a favor and go and find one Laurence Olivier on the Dick Cavett show in 1973 reciting sonnet 116 that sonnet is let me not to the marriage of two minds admit impediments and Olivier recites that to Dick Cavett in 1973 with such poise and assuredness and precision and it's always just a reminder that Shakespeare is so so accessible when it's in the right hands it's so so accessible when it comes out of the right mouth the right brain uh, the right performer um, and the sonnets are they're just these lovely little um, what these little portions these little tasters of Shakespeare I think he wrote 154 sonnets in total so many about love so many about time so many about death so many about mortality um and if you are if you are and uh, as i was um 30 years ago uh, a student of shakespeare um when i was in acting school that was one of the first things we were given to work on we were each assigned a sonnet each of us in the acting school we, we were each assigned a sonnet to present for assessment um and they are, you know, they are a prescribed form, a prescribed format, the f- a 14-line poem written mostly in iambic pentameter. So that is a, iambic pentameter is a, a meter, uh, a rhythm, if you will, where each line is composed of five iambic feet an iambic foot is fundamentally a short long syllable uh, so two syllables one short one long da 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 and that rhythm is your guide for where you should place emphasis uh, in a line of shakespearean verse um so we studied all that as well so most of the sonnets are written in that rhythm let me not to the marriage. No, so you've got it wrong straight away. Let me not. To, let me not to the marriage of. That's a tricky one. Sometimes it breaks the rhythm by putting the shorter long first. Let me not to the marriage of two minds. So there's a little skipped bit there. Let me not to the marriage. Let me not to. Moa. <laughs> When iambic, when, when iambic pentameter goes wrong, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? There you go. That's a that's a that's sticking with the with the meter. Let me not to the marriage. Let me let me. There you go. Let me not to the marriage of two minds. Admit impediments. Da 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 da. Good lord. <laughs> anyway. I'm not Laurence Olivier, obviously, <laughs> as just demonstrated. But go and check that out. It's just lovely. It is lovely. 
And that, I just came across that on Instagram last week, just scrolling. I was like, oh, that's nice. Um, and of course, Olivier is considered one of the all-time greats, one of the absolute masters of Shakespeare, particularly Shakespeare on screen. Um, I think I did refer to, at some point in the recent past, there's a very funny, no, not very funny, a very entertaining, a very nice documentary featuring interviews with uh, Joan Plowright, who was married to Olivier, uh, Judy Dench, Maggie Smith, and a fourth great English actress. And they had lots of moments. It's, it's fundamentally just footage from these actresses' careers and then footage of them meeting up and having tea and having a great laugh and reliving their acting careers. And they all... I think I did. I was talking about this before. They all clearly had a sort of an eye-rolling <laughs> opinion of Olivier as being this sort of monstrous egotist who had to be handled and managed and uh, placated uh, and you know assuaged, uh, and it was quite funny. But um, he is considered one of the greats. And go and listen to that sonnet. Uh, just find it on YouTube or whatever. And another thing you can find on YouTube, and you might already know where this is going if you have any interest in these things. Over the weekend on the Graham Norton show on TV, there was Judy Dench. I have enormous time for Judy Dench. I just find her so endlessly charming and funny, and again, just an actress of such great subtlety and poise. Um, I'm not sure when my relationship with Judy Dench started. She was in a very funny English sitcom for years called is it was as year as time goes by, her and Jeffrey Palmer as a, a couple and just one of these gently witty English sitcoms. Um and she was very good. Um and then I don't know if it was Mrs. Brown from the mid nineties playing wasn't she playing Queen Victoria? And Billy Connolly was her her aide, and they became very close, and it was a sort of a scandal. Um, so that movie, Mrs. Brown, is uh, she was very good in that. And then I don't know that, that that seemed to be a real. I mean, she had a long career already at that stage on stage and um, in other things, I guess. But I don't remember seeing her much on screen prior to that, and I feel she's been on screen constantly since then and obviously she was M in the James Bond movies with um, Pierce Brosnan and then Daniel Craig and was very good in that role doing a lot with not very much but in any case on the Graham Norton show at the weekend Graham Norton turned to her and said if I poke you with a stick would you do some Shakespeare (laughs) would you do something for us and once she clarified what Graham Norton had said, she recited, oh, so, so beautifully, Sonnet 29, which is, when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes. Oh my goodness. I just could have listened to it again and again and again. And I don't know if it's because she's older but each line each word almost it's just invested with such 
such experience, such meaning, such understanding, and such, again, such clarity and such precision and such economy like nothing wasted no fluff just this is precisely what I wanted to say and I came away from it and I was just thinking my god (laughs) if I could ever recite a sonnet as beautifully as that I would be so so happy um you just hung I found myself just hanging on every single word and just again it just feels like she's the first person to ever say those words and that is great 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 acting um there's such simplicity and such artlessness to it um but that is born of so much experience and born of such instinct and feel and understanding um and yeah in 14 lines just to to absolutely take take one's breath away i just thought it was absolutely fantastic so do yourself a favor do yourself a favor if you have even a scintilla of interest in such things go and check out those two masters of Shakespearean verse, of Shakespearean language, speaking on TV chat shows, 50 years apart. Laurence Olivier, that Laurence Olivier appearance was from 1973. And Judy Dench, 50 years later, just blew my socks off <laughs> with her beautiful rendition of Sonnet 29. Um, and the thing is you might go I don't really get Shakespeare I don't know Shakespeare but if you listen to both of them saying those sonnets reciting those sonnets delivering those sonnets communicating those sonnets you don't need to know Shakespeare because they're just giving you everything you need and it's just a lesson you don't need any extra crap around it Um, and of course this is I, I find myself wanting to cite Hamlet's um the speech he gives the the leader of the acting troupe the head of the acting troupe that comes to wait or does does, does does hamlet say it to the players i can't remember but like speak the speech i pray you it's you know that that scene in hamlet when this troupe of actors have come to elsinore the castle and hamlet wants them to insert a little a little play inside the play to see if he can draw out the the, the king the king's guilt um, his uncle who has murdered his father um, but there is a speech giving advice to the actors to basically <laughs> act better <laughs> don't be don't be chewing up the scenery and carrying on like hands and battling each other for center stage just say the words just hit your mark and say the words so that's worth checking out as well yeah um, the the you know advice to the players um and look i'm going to expose myself brutally because i can't resist i'm so inspired by these sonnets i'm going to i'm going to read 
I'm going to read a sonnet. I'm going to read the same sonnet twice. And this is just a little exercise. Um, and I'm interested to hear it because obviously when, as I record, I can hear um, I can hear what I'm doing. And it was funny. Again, I just happened to be watching Graham Norton the previous weekend um, on the, the, the BBC. Is it, yeah, he's, oh, he's on the BBC, isn't he? He's a national treasure, our own Graham Norton. He's so great at what he does. Um, but a couple of weeks ago he had, and I, I know why I was watching it because it was on each weekend after the rugby. So I was just kind of, I'd just be flicking through TV channels, but he was interviewing Patrick Stewart and Ray Fiennes was also there. And Patrick Stewart came from, um, where did he say, was he from Lancashire or Yorkshire? Um, and he, he spoke that particular dialect of English that was common, uh, in Yorkshire, or maybe still is. That I won't even begin to attempt here. It's a very, it's a it's a very strange uh, dialect to to the modern ear, but like a lot of Shakespearean actors and a lot of students in acting school, um, maybe and particularly of his age, but I did too. You you're taught what's called RP, received pronunciation, which is supposedly an unaccented English, but to some ears it just sounds like sort of posh English but it isn't it's not how the royals speak it's not as stuffy as that um, it's just meant to be very clean um, and I'm just I'm often curious to when I'm looking at classical verse or classical text to to read it or recite it with RP and then just to also read it or recite it in my own accent and see what the difference is because Shakespeare, of course, was meant to be very accessible to uh, common people, for want of a better phrase. Um, you know, it was meant to be, Shakespeare wrote for everyone. He wasn't just writing for upper class uh, consumers, so to speak. So his language should work in anybody's mouth, in anybody's accent. And the challenge for the actor or the the reciter is always to communicate the meaning. Um, okay, so I'm going to give it a lash. I'll go, I'll go RP first. Um, this is sonnet number one two nine. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action, and till action lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despised straight, past reason hunted and no sooner had, past reason hated as a swallowed bait, on purpose laid to make the taker mad. Mad in pursuit and in possession, so had having and in quest to have extreme a bliss in proof and proved a very woe before a joy proposed behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Hmm. 
Okay, tricky. Okay, so um, in my own voice, my own accent, this poem, if you, if, and again, I'm not satisfied that I communicated the meaning of that successfully, but this poem is a denunciation of lust um, and seems particularly directed at men and their relationship to lust. And yeah, interesting. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action, and till action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner, but despised straight, past reason hunted, and no sooner had past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had having and in quest to have extreme, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe before a joy proposed behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. <laughs> I don't know. Listen, I, I hear myself saying that and all I want to do is go back and listen to Judy Dench and Laurence Olivier and uh, you may feel the same. Um, anyway, an experiment, as I said, and I, I expose myself willingly um, just to see what that was like. Okay, so let me let let me move on that's that's you know more than enough shakespeare i'm sure you think um let me move on to uh, a voice more contemporary martin scorsese and his movie that's out now his film that's out now killers of the flower moon and i'm going to talk about this movie with spoilers so if you're if you don't want to the if you don't want to have the movie ruined um you know tune in another time um or maybe listen and go yeah i'm happy to see it anyway so i went to see this last week in my local cinema the movie is almost three and a half hours long i had deliberately deliberately uh, and determinedly avoided as much as i could about this movie i had no idea what it was about i'd seen snatches of trailers and i could see that it was set in what looked like the the you know the not the wild west but the sort of the modernizing west of america in the early 20th century um i saw that de niro robert de niro was in it i saw that leonardo dicaprio was in it i'm not sure i recognized any other faces from the trailer and that was about it and i i had a sense that there was a native american or first american or indigenous american presence in the movie i knew nothing else and 
I sat down. I was pretty tired when I went to see it. Um, but I sat down and started watching. And I was... I was kind of tripped out immediately, you know, I, 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 you know, initially. And I thought, oh, this is a, um, this is like an alternate history of the US. Because what I was seeing, and it was presented in sort of a newsreel format, black and white, like vintage black and white images. What I was seeing was Scorsese presenting a world where Native Americans were enormously affluent and successful um, and gadding about like uh, the waspiest, whitest, you know, wealthiest citizens in America and attending college and playing polo (laughs) and being driven around by white people um, and graduating from university uh, and I was like, oh, what is this? What is this fascinating alternate history? Um, Where is this going to take us? Who are these fantastical characters that have been invented? But as I continued to watch, I realized, oh, no, this is this is fact. This is historical account. And. You know, it was kind of thrilling. Um, but what Scorsese has done is, you know, I like he's done very well in other of his of his movies from his long career. You know, he's he, he, it's it's an act of world building and inviting you into the world. But I have to say, I was sitting there, and this comes back to a theme that I've touched on many times. I feel. Uh, on the podcast the idea of you know what's being presented to us the realities that are presented to us the the faces that are presented to us the roles that are presented to us uh, on our screens across popular media in movies on tv shows um and the idea of um the other not being seen the idea of faces of colour being relegated to very particular and often historically lesser roles. And suddenly I was being presented with images of, you know, historically, uh, you know, a group of people who are historically horrendously transgressed upon, um, you know, the victims of attempted, you know, eradication, genocide, and really apart from uh, the western genre uh, of movies not faces you see on on tv or film very much Um, and my brain was sort of reeling a little bit kind of going what what am i actually looking at here because i've no i've no precedent of nothing that sets me up to go oh yeah of course this actually makes total sense and so in a way i was playing catch up um to try and fully grasp what i was being shown and ultimately ultimately what i was being shown was scorsese's 
filmed version of the the book um i haven't i haven't uh, gone to to find the the author's name of that book but uh, i think scorsese did the screenplay maybe with the author and it is as i as i previously mentioned it's a historical text and it is the account of osage american indians who were moved driven out of missouri um and ended up in is it oklahoma and founded the osage nation which i don't know what the timeline was but at some point after they arrived there they discovered it was one of the most oil rich regions in the united states and suddenly they were swimming in wealth um and a an arrangement came about whereby there were white administrators of their wealth white custodians of their wealth so they could have access to it but it was being controlled by white um yeah custodians i suppose i don't, I don't know what the, 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 more, the most accurate word is and what killers of the flower moon depicts is how there was uh, a systematic um campaign of of murder of the members of the osage nation and a systematic campaign of murder a conspiracy among the white members of that community who came and again scorsese plays this with such a, a deft hand that all the pieces are in place when we meet the main players all the white people are in the community established running their businesses and taking uh taking as much as they can from the the, the native americans and charging as much as they can possibly get away with um and the native americans are paying those prices and living living sort of like the you know it's like it's like a, a gatsby-esque lifestyle driving those cars wearing those clothes living in nice houses having nice things gambling drinking etc um and white men circulate constantly trying to see if they can um secure themselves a native american bride and this is part of the strategy of marrying into into wealth and marrying into what are referred to as head rights which i guess were the the rights to land with oil on it um and the you know chief amongst these white conspirators who was systematically going after particular members of the osage community was a man called king kale i think i've got that right that's the run that's played played by robert de niro in the movie and he is he is the the sort of the you know the the, the chess master if you will and a sort of an, an unofficial very sort of avuncular slash paternal mayor type 
figure in the community, in well with everybody, held in hugely high regard by the the Native Americans, held in hugely high regard by the you know, the burghers of the town, the citizens of the town, the shop owners, the business owners. And he's sort of all over everything. And his nephew returns from the war and comes to his uncle. And this nephew is played by Leonardo DiCaprio as a... Well, the first thing I noticed about Leonardo DiCaprio's performance is he was doing a version of what Brad Pitt did in Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. He was shaping his face with a very fixed position across his kind of jaw or chin or mouth. Um, in in Brad Pitt's case, in Inglorious Bastards, it was kind of a perpetual sort of sneer on his mouth, which I know is Pitt's version of or tribute to the, the sort of B-movie actor Aldo Rain. Uh, Aldo Ray, sorry. He he was his character was Aldo Rain in the Glorious Bastards. Um and DiCaprio has the sort of uh the the kind of the jutting chin, sort of a, a simian type chin that is that instantly gives the impression of lesser intellect. And we see him travelling on a train arriving into the, the main town in the story and He's kind of taking everything in. He's kind of greedy with his eyes, taking in what he can see and looking at the 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 Native Americans dripping with wealth. Um, but he, you know, again, DiCaprio really is a, he really is a class actor. He he's a great physical actor. Um, never more clearly demonstrated probably than Wolf of Wall Street. And if you don't like that performance, um, you can check out The Revenant for more you know physical commitment but he's a very intelligent actor DiCaprio um, and that's a great skill to be such an intelligent actor but to play dumb convincingly without making it a a parody or you know selling his character short or patronising his character um, he kind of walks that line very well now what I found out subsequently from listening to some other uh, podcasts and reading reviews his character was meant to be a lot younger. And you hear him being referred to as a boy or young. Um, and I think historically this character was back from World War One. He'd been a chef. He had like stomach issues. And he was in his mid-twenties. And DiCaprio's a, a good-looking guy and very charismatic. But he doesn't look 25. And this is the second time that, that Scorsese has done this. Now he used his de-aging technology in The Irishman. And you had people calling the 70-something uh, De Niro, you know, a young guy um, in that. And it it just doesn't work. Like, it, it, is, it is a detraction and somewhat of a distraction. Now, when I was watching Flowers of the Killer Moon, I didn't know the, the DiCaprio character was meant to be so young. And I didn't really question it. But there is a key... A moment later in the piece when a sort of grandstanding bombastic um, Brendan Fraser is interrogating or confronting DiCaprio in a 
in a living room full of the sort of the, the, the well-to-do whites from the community. Or maybe it's in court when he says it, but he addresses him as a dumb boy. And again, it was jarring. You're going, hold on. He doesn't, like, he looks older than Fraser. Uh, but anyway, look, whatever. That's, you know, you know <laughs> that's just the, the privilege of being in with Scorsese and Scorsese going, yeah, feck it, go on, play this character, we'll make it work. And DiCaprio's good enough and you go on the journey with him. But um, his physical appearance is is striking with that jutting chin and a not especially flattering haircut and very crooked looking teeth. Um, but he is in the story considered a handsome guy and he is directed by De Niro towards a daughter of one of the Native American families um, who is played absolutely brilliantly by an actress I had never seen before her name is Lily Gladstone and she is the standout performance of the movie she is absolutely compelling and has an just an intriguing and enticing interior intelligence and humour that she holds with a great stillness um, throughout the movie um, and such a wonderful, a wonderfully held performance that feels full of life and intelligence um, and emotion. And she is more than the equal of DiCaprio, De Niro and the other actors in the in the piece um and ultimately the the story kind of hinges around DiCaprio's relationship and marriage to her the children they have and how DiCaprio who's plays character his name is Ernest Burkhart um and how his character is a it's just a pawn I mean, I refer to De Niro's character as a, the, the kind of the chess master, and DiCaprio is the, the kind of the willing pawn in in De Niro's game, and being deployed strategically, and again, it's to try and get access to the oil, um, and it's you know the, the the plot is given a lot of time to breathe, and while we're breathing, we're taking in. The visual flourishes. We're taking in the, the the fantastic set design, the costumes. We're being haunted and unnerved by Robbie Robertson's score, the late Robbie Robertson, to whom the movie is dedicated. Um, and as I was watching it, there were times when I was going, "Hmm, there's not much going on here," but. By the time the film ended, I can't remember ever leaving a cinema feeling so sick and depressed and chilled, but also sort of mesmerized by the images that I'd seen and sort of electrified and, and, and hugely stimulated 
by the the cinematic storytelling that I'd just been privy to. Um, and Scorsese just there are just so many moments, so many, and it might just, and literally it might just be a moment, just visually where you're going, oh, that's that's fantastic to look at. It's it's beautiful. I want to go back and savor it. Um, and that's like that's the they're just the aesthetic pleasures of the movie, but ultimately, the story, which is one of of murder, of of execution, and of the most sinister, of the most profound and sinister racism, the most profound and sinister othering the most profound and sinister disregard for human life and the very specific, the very specific act of relegating other people to a lower class of animal, a lower class of human and a class of human whose life doesn't matter and that for me was the was the takeaway from the story was the the callousness of this tacit and it felt tacit this tacit understanding among the white characters that of course these people are there for us to kill of course these people are there for us to murder. Of course these people are there for us to take advantage of. And of course they are so much less than we are. And that is why we can treat them the way we do. It's why we can get into bed with them, uh, literally and figuratively, um, and stick knives in their hearts and kill their children and not lose a wink of sleep over it because we have such utter contempt for them um and the affront is that they got access to what we should own we as white people of european extraction um good christian folk and that is captured and portrayed with such a sure hand and a very restrained hand by Scorsese where yeah you're 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 well I was just sitting there going this is the work of a master this is the work of an elder statesman of cinema who is absolutely sure of what he wants to show, of what he doesn't want to show. And in ways, it was a very un-Scorsese-like movie in terms of, if we think of the defining Scorsese movies as being very much rooted in the world of male violence and, um, I want to say, outlawry. I don't know how to make a noun out of the you know, the action of being the you know the life um, the psychology of being an outlaw, 
but you know movies like Raging Bull movies like Taxi Driver movies like Goodfellas like Casino um, Mean Streets obviously you know the, the gangster life you know guys who live by the gun um, and they're sort of explosive and visceral and in your face and confronting they make you kind of recoil from the screen and this this was part of the the, the, the the other side of the Scorsese aesthetic and the Scorsese voice where the movie I associated it with most initially was probably The Age of Innocence, which was all about decorum and restraint and etiquette and class and the superficial performance of of one's role and the superficial performance of a certain section of society um it had much more of that in it um but as i said the the effect at the end was just this this kind of realization this horrible realization as the full understanding of what had been going on which involved the 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 the, the poisoning of of certain people um the the arranged murder of certain people and there was a line there was a line at one point that you'd be more likely to be convicted convicted for killing a dog than killing an indian um, and I can only assume that that was a historically accurate quotation. Um, but there, I'm not sure if there's ever been a more successful representation or portrayal of white greed, venality, supremacy racism um, and brutality than in this movie that's that, you know it, it, in a way that was rooted in in a particular form of storytelling that wasn't meant to be a horror that wasn't meant to be a thriller that wasn't meant to be a punch in the face for two hours um that wasn't like leering on the horribleness, um, you know, in a in a in a gratuitous or salacious manner. It was rendering it all in a much more mundane way. Um, like this is just routine. I'm just gonna do the laundry and then I'm gonna blow up the house with that couple. The, you know the Native American wife, the white husband, because they're a, a bump in the road. We need to get rid of. Um, I'm just going to lay the table for dinner, but then I'm gonna, you know, shoot this mother and then take her baby. Um, and it was that sort of the casual violence and the the casual the casual kind of conspiracy that became more clear the the conspiracy that all the white people were 
utterly at ease with to such an extent that one of the characters at one point warns just gives a very gentle uh, warning to another white member of the community you might want to move your furniture your good stuff away from the house this evening with no further explanation needed um, because something terrible was about to happen in the in the neighbourhood that might involve a shockwave or broken glass or, or whatever and the that violence towards indigenous people particularly specifically it reminded me very much of a movie from a few years ago called the nightingale which was a depiction of colonial savagery and brutality um in the the colonial era of australia um which featured an irish character at its heart who goes on a revenge mission after english soldiers murder her her husband and child and she teams up with a young indigenous man and they are on this yeah revenge mission but that movie is a really hard watch it is a brutal watch and i found it it stayed with me for quite a while after i'd seen it i found it absolutely chilling and haunting and disturbing um and sadly it felt very believable um and there is there's a there's a sequence in it where a bunch of i can't remember if, if they were military men or just I guess what you'd call slavers who are walking along the road with indigenous captors and they bump into the protagonist who's there with her indigenous comrade who she has to pretend is her captor and they they have an exchange on the road and then the the other guys the other party the white members of the other party just on a on a whim just suddenly shoot all the the indigenous members in their crew all the captors you know with no provocation it just seems to just happen from nowhere and they're just kind of laughing to themselves like whoops i just dropped the eggs or i dropped an egg why don't i just drop the lot and smash them on the road that would be funny and i'd never seen that before in in a movie and it was yeah just uh, i'm not even sure if i have the language to describe it like vile uh grotesque horrific but that movie as opposed to flower killers of the flower moon was i think very much set up to really put that in your face you know and i think a very accomplished movie by the way i'm not, I'm not in any way trying to demean it or make it less than but it had a very particular tone and a very particular commitment to showing you the depravity of the whites um, in a very confronting way. It's very powerful and affecting, effective storytelling. Um, and in Killers of the Flower Moon, it's much more subtle. Even though there are moments of violence, it's much more subtle. It's much more insidious and all the more unsettling for it because it is pre- 
presented or it's done under um, under a veneer of civility and that's that's really the kind of most disturbing aspect of it um, and in the end the 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 the, the, you know, the main antagonists DiCaprio De Niro they are they are caught they are caught and they are you know they're pursued and caught by a very canny and organized um, group of FBI men in an early early incarnation of the FBI and apparently the the book dedicates a lot more time to the FBI and Jesse Plemons who was also in uh, Scorsese's The Irishman plays the main FBI guy who is just surveying things with that Jesse Plemons stillness his um his uh his very sort of um still quiet politeness not giving anything away sort of implacable but you can see he's taken everything in and he's got all these guys sewn up very quickly um and the you know the the, the film ends you know the last you know the last few scenes of the movie are fundamentally Lily Gladstone's character um you know severing ties with DiCaprio who had been in in and in inverted commas treating her diabetes with insulin but insulin also in inverted commas because actually he'd been poisoning her and that seemed to be a favored method of this uh, De Niro character of King Kale to poison these um, Native Americans who stood between him and land rights or head rights uh, so he'd get to the oil money um, and so she breaks with DiCaprio um, and then there's this sort of sort of an an anachronistic or discordant I don't know how you describe it a sequence towards the end of the movie it's the second last sequence of the film and it's it's a radio a live radio production of a true crime uh, episode uh, with sound effects and an orchestra and an audience listening and various people playing out kind of different roles but it's the story of what happened to the Osage Nation and those murders and the death of Lily, you know, reports the death of Lily Gladstone's character and the ends of uh, DiCaprio's character and De Niro's character. And it's played in a very, you know, uh, particular way that that's, I guess, a throwback to the style of the time. Um, And it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's it, it's a very bizarre moment of levity at the end, and it was a sort of a promotional show for the FBI. And Scorsese himself is one of the announcers, um, and you're kind of going, "Oh, this is cute and kind of funny," but again, obviously, it's a it's an indication of the you know where this story was located and how it was sort of just turned into entertainment. Um, for white America and many of those murders were left unsolved and uninvestigated but then the final the final piece the final scene 
um, in the movie was this, what I, I thought was a really beautiful aerial shot that slowly zoomed up and out uh, wide on a Native American um, ritual of what I took to be contemporary Native Americans doing a, a ritual um, procession slash dance um, in a, a constantly moving circle so circles within circles and it was on a you know a huge grassy green grassy field and they were in various you know very colorful and you know chanting and banging drums um and i found that almost the most moving thing in the whole movie because corsese had communicated so successfully the the integrity of their culture their awareness you know the Native American in you know in, in in this specific case in the Osage Nation, their awareness of what was being done to their culture, the challenges they faced, the loss of their heritage, um, and then to see what was playing out around them in that very particular um, time and place. Um, so it was yeah, it was kind of profound in the end to kind of go there's there's a commitment to a commitment to keeping things alive there's a commitment which is i see as a you know it's it's, it's an act of affirmation but it's also an act of defiance um to go we're, we're, we haven't lost everything we still we still retain something of who we were and who we are and it's still valuable and we're still here um, in spite of everything that's being done to us. Um, and I, I just found that, yeah, it was it was sort of, it was just beautiful. Um, that's how I received it anyway. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much I spoiled there. I didn't go into huge details of particular plot actions, but um, a really sort of surprising movie and a very thought-provoking movie um and one i do want to see again um but an absolute unequivocal indictment of white dishonesty white people's dishonesty white americans greed and murderousness um and willingness to you know to make kind of blood oaths and pacts with murderers to um to take what wasn't theirs um and yeah an indictment of their their disregard for the lives of those they felt were less than them so that sounds like your thing Go and watch that movie. Go and read the book. Uh, I thought it was absolutely excellent. And that would be time very well spent. But, you know, make sure you go for a pee <laughs> before you sit down to watch it. It's, it's it's a long one. And even though there were times, as I said, where I felt not much happening at the moment, it was compelling. And there were moments of great, great beauty. And, yeah, just really great cinema cinematic storytelling 
and thank God for Martin Scorsese. Um, it was really brilliant. So there you go. That's my recommendation. That's my review. Um, hope you enjoyed that. I'm going to uh, I'm going to wrap this up. So there you go. Bit of Shakespeare, bit of Martin Scorsese, bit of American history, and um, I don't know what the you know the wellness takeaway. Uh, I mean, if I if we look at the sonnets, to communicate with economy, with precision, to express ourselves well. I just you know do I express myself well like that's that is an iteration of wellness have I communicated something pure that serves its own purpose and has its own wellness benefit Um, and from the Scorsese movie from Killers of the Flower Moon I think I focus on that final image from the movie the the act of defiance I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big believer in internalizing or embedding a defiant spirit that is self-caring, self-protecting, self-affirming to go, I'm here in spite of everything. I'm going to be here in spite of everything. I step forward and present myself in spite of everything. That takes courage and it takes a certain fearlessness and a certain confidence and it is not without risk there's a an exposure there but i think that's where true strength can be found and true as a yeah true affirmation and i really value that as part of how i think about wellness and how i think about my own wellness and this this podcast is an act of defiance. <laughs> I'm defying those who would not listen. <laughs> and I keep doing this. Um, so you can help me. You can help me make this not an act of defiance by encouraging lots of people to listen and come and check it out. Okay, I'm gone. Adios. Many thanks for listening. Throw me some love on social media, if you will. Rate, review, comment share subscribe and if you think this is really worth it if you think no that's that's some proper work going into that uh you can put your hand in your in your virtual pocket and pay me some money to keep this thing afloat you can make a cash contribution a financial contribution a financial vote of confidence via the patreon link that's patreon.com the clear out um patreon.com forward slash the clear out to be uh, to be precise and yeah i'd welcome anything you can give it's the you know the price of a cup of coffee once a month or twice a month it's not a lot but it means a lot to me so uh, consider that if you enjoy what you hear but otherwise just spread the word uh, give me a like throw a comment my way i'd be very very appreciative and otherwise thanks for listening i appreciate you taking this time with me and i'll be back next week with something else All the best. Take care. Mind yourselves. Bye.